my dear friend uh, and longtime comrade Nina Lozano on today uh, to talk about uh, her book and the violence against uh, women in Juarez, but as part of a larger uh, milieu um, of capitalism and neoliberalism and politics of the border and all of that. And first of all, kudos, this uh, this book has really uh, been has really done really well in terms of 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 leaving an impression on folks and really uh, being seen as a starting point now for talking about um, violence at the border and neoliberalism and the after effects of NAFTA and all of those things. Um, how did you uh, did you think that you know coming in from your angle as a communication theorist um, would uh, would be the maybe the right angle uh, to ask these questions? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, as a longtime friend and colleague, I'm just so happy to be here and honored to be here with you. So thank you for um, inviting me. Um, this, this project has really been a labor of love. Um, I've been working on the feminist CDOs since 2003. So yeah, this, a long, you've been on this a long, long time and you've gone down there and you have been in the field. I have, I have. And, um, you know, one of the things that really was important to me was really having the, the kind of blessing from the family members and the activists. Um, one of the things I learned early on was that, and, you know, this isn't surprising, but that scholars would go down there, you know, it, it was this kind of sexy topic in the early 2000s. And, you know, they would go down there and do an interview and, you know, take from the community um, and never give back to that community. And so people would say, you know, when is your book going to be done? When is your book going to be done? And and I would try to, to articulate that it takes a long time when you're doing work in the field um, to garner trust from those community members. Um, and so even before the book was finished, I took back um, my data and my analysis to the family members and to the activists um, to really ensure that this project was being done properly. Uh, I'm reading a review um, and this is from, let's see here. Uh, looks like um, this is the Women's Studies and Communication Review. So Michaela Torres, I believe, uh, writing this uh, in her recent book, um, Not One More, uh, Feminicidio on the Border, uh, Nina Marie Lozano asks readers to interrogate the relationship between neoliberalism, material property, and the ongoing wave of feminicidio. Uh, I am sorry uh, that I'm not, I'm mispronouncing that this morning. Well, um, no, actually, and that's part of the, we can talk about how the name, that even the term has evolved. Yeah. Um, because yeah. it started as femicide right. and then went to feminicides and now we're at feminicidios. But you I can noticed say, that this morning. Femicide Feminicidio, um, which has plagued Juarez, Mexico for decades. Uh, this gendered violence is characterized by the continual disappearance, assault, mutilation and murder of primarily young low-income women in Mexico. The Mexican government denies the occurrence, 
re rendering the systemic violence invisible and remaining complicit in its continuance. And so, uh, and this uh, this review is a good encapsulation again of 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 the the theoretical work you do as a gateway to understanding the material relationships here, how capitalism and neoliberalism uh, and border violence, all of these things together contextualize violence against women and poverty and all of these other intersections. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, the I really tried to, the, the beginning of the book talks a lot about this like Hollywood intrigue surrounding the femicides. And we have to understand that first um, to kind of then springboard off of um, the theoretical, but it was very much this whodunit, you know, like who is killing the women of, of Juarez. And um, in fact, that was the name of a, a conference that was held in 03 at UCLA. Um, and then, you know, it really evolved from there um, in my critique of how Hollywood commodified these killings, right? Um, and very much sensationalized them. And I, I shifted the question from, from who is killing the women of Juarez to the question of what? What are the systems right. at play that give rise to femicide in the first place? And so that was a really um, concerted shift on, on my part. And you want to t talk a little bit about the field work uh, here. I mean, I think that there is there's definitely um, a stereotype of uh, rhetoricians and other folks in the humanities kind of never leaving their offices as they as they work. Uh, and that is so different than the experience um, that you had. Well, I, you know, I, I like to think about myself as a, a scholar activist. And I've talked about this before, I think, and you've probably heard this too, the trope that, you know, when folks say my activism is in my scholarship. Um, and I really, really question that um, because we can certainly write about things, um, but if we are gonna be change agents in the world, um, I really feel that we have to take the privileges that we have, particularly those of us who are in academe, who have all this theoretical knowledge, um, whatever the issue may be, whether it be the environment or domestic violence or femicide, um, to be in the field, to be engaged in the world um, is really important. And so for me, um, I try to think of those things as, as inseparable. Uh, and so what was it like? Um, you know, do you have any uh, uh, good stories or anecdotes about um, maybe things that you learned about yourself or uh, about the work um, that you hadn't really suspected or hadn't known until you were able to actually, you know, be in the in the physical geography? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so much. Um, when I first started researching the feminist studios, I participated in a really powerful um, event called the Caravan for Justice, um, which really was a consciousness raising event that took that started in Canada, went through the United States, and then um, ended powerfully with um, across the border in El Paso. Um, and the Caravan for Justice was 
my first attempt to really be in the field as it were. And so we stopped um, at various locations and had critical interrogations of feminicidios with the mothers of the victims. And that's really, really important. So um, giving them a voice, creating spaces for their narratives to circulate um, was really, really powerful. And we thought that consciousness raising is great, but we also need to make demands. And so along that journey, uh, we ended up in the Chihuahua um, governor's palace where we held meetings with uh, members of the government officials and took those demands from the family members um, directly to the state, um, which was extremely powerful. And some of the demands um, were granted, others were not. Um, but it really started off the, um, this framework of the circulation of discourse in the public sphere for the purpose of going beyond consciousness raising, making demands, um, and there have been many, many protests um, on both sides of the border. Um, and being in the field, for me, you know, one of the things I always tell my students is we are not here to solve the problem, right? We are not the ones with the answers. The community members have the answers. And so we act in solidarity with. Um, and that's something that's really, really important to me. And so, you know, as a young scholar, I had all these ideas. I was just out of my doctoral program. You know, here's what needs to happen. Here's what we need to do. Um, and, and just completely inverted that model into attempting to learn, to listen, to understand. Um, and then eventually getting to a point of collaboration where um, in the field, in, in addition to the protests and the demands, um, we've gone out and painted murals. There's a chapter in the book called The Faces of Femicide, um, because as you mentioned in that review in Women's Studies and Communication, um, the rhetoric of the government is still very much so that this is a dark legend, that this is a dark myth. Um, and so the Faces of Femicide mural project was one example in addition to protests where um, we worked on numerous murals that tell the stories um, of the victims that showed that their lives were real, that these were the things that um, that these uh, individuals were living. And what, what's really interesting about that project is the government then tried to co-opt the project and they would make a mural where it would just be like a face and a rose, a face and a rose. And, you know, we were working with people, um, Yuvia, um, who, who um, is one of the artists um, featured in, in the book, Raya Rocho, um, would take the time to interview the families and the family members and learn about their lives. And you can just, I kind of juxtapose these murals side by side and you can just see that even in the mural project, the government was commodifying um, like an assembly line, just these images with no stories, no narratives, no background. Um, that was a really important project that we undertook. We also went out and painted crosses um, around the city. And the, the painting of crosses is really important because um, it is in the public consciousness then. You know, it's always there as a reminder, but also as a warning. So many of the crosses that are put are where the bodies have been found. Um, so that individuals know to be safe around these particular areas. Um, and also a warning to the state from the activists that we know 
right? We know what's happening. We know who the players are that are involved. Um, in addition to the painting of the crosses, um, probably one of the most powerful experiences that I've had is actually conducting searches for the victims out in the Chihuahua Desert. Um, in, in Spanish, those would be called rastreos or searches. Um, and because of the ineptitude and the impunity of the government, um, the government does not search. The government does not search for the women. So these citizen action committees have been taken on by the activists, by the family members, they are very well organized um, to go out in the field and look for any DNA, any bones, any remains, any clothing, anything that can be, then be taken back to try to identify um, the victims. And um, of course, in all of these, we would run into um, pretty significant suppression strategies um, you know, by the state. Um, and so it's always a precarious place. Um, but again, being in the field, those are just a few examples of the importance of being in the field to really understand the conditions um, that are taking place around, around the impunity. I've done, you know, just a minimal amount of, of field work in legal research internationally. And I know that, um, that navigating those public officials is tricky. Uh, and I can only imagine that it was tricky uh, on steroids uh, in Juarez. Uh, what what are some of those evasive um, strategies or intimidation tactics? Do, are there any of those that you can uh, recall or speak to? Um, yeah, I mean, well, I the book talks about different strategies of suppression um, by the state, and I'll talk about just a few of those. Um, sure, I thank mean, you. One, one of the um, one of the things that we ran into numerous times was the falsification of evidence. So that's a strategy that the state uses. Um, harassment, particularly with the mothers, being followed. It's important to note that there have been numerous activists that have been assassinated. So um, obviously, the strategy of purgation is real. Um, there are, have been numerous journalists that have been assassinated that have been attempting to expose um, the government involvement with the, the femicides. Um, but their strategies are very hegemonic in that, you know, in addition to falsification of evidence, um, their rhetoric is very much that these women live double lives, right? That they were prostitutes or they were on the wrong side of the tracks as a way to decredit, um, you know, the, uh, the, the killings of these women's in a way that somehow they were asking for it, right? And we know this, this happens on a regular basis with any mm -hmm. work in, in gendered violence. Um, but there were, there's also been torture um, and scapegoating. And so one of the things that we were able to do in the field, um, which was a little bit risky, was we were able to get into the prison where a man by David Mesa um, was tortured into a confession um, and the killing of, of his cousin. And we were able to get in, they only took a few of us in, but um, we were able to get his testimony um, about the, the killing. Um, and that was really, really important um, because we were having protests here in Los Angeles at the Mexican consulate every Friday demanding his release. 
Um, and, you know, at first they took us on this wild goose chase and they told him he wasn't available. And then we were at the wrong prison. I mean, so these revolving door kind of uh, strategies and, and tactics um, are, are continually something that the movement has to contend with. We, we are here with uh, Nina Marie Lozano, and we are discussing uh, her book, Not One More, uh, Feminist CDO on the Border. Uh, this is a book about the murder of women in Juarez and the politics and rhetoric surrounding it. Um, and if we to, if we were to to uh, pan backwards um, and, and and get a, a bigger picture of, of sort of the whole history of this question, um, what would you you know what what would you tell people initially about the relationship of things like NAFTA and other uh, neoliberal uh, policies um, and how they have contextualized Juarez? Yeah, thank you. That's that's a really important question. So I mentioned earlier that I tried to move it from the who to the what. Um, and so I, I was really looking for something to anchor this, this book to. And I think it's important to speak just for a minute about my theoretical approaches to this question. Um, and I don't know if you've heard about this turn in academe to new materialism, I don't know if you've heard a little bit about that. Just a little bit, but I was hoping you would tell me more. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's been this really, um, uh, it, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's it's been a very popular um, turn in our field talking about new materialism, which has to do with granting inherent agency to objects and things. And so there's all this literature about objects and things being inherently vibrant. And so my book takes on this theoretical construct of new materialism. Um, and I'll just read my, kind of my thesis, um, which says, I contend that the post-humanistic new materialist turn is fraught with dangers in its disavowal of human agency in its complicity with neoliberal capitalism and through its fetishization of object-oriented things and where political movements are disarmed. Um, and so if we, I mean, there actually is scholarship about things like speed bumps and beer hops. I mean, these-, these Attributing these, agency to them in some yes, way? Yes, attributing so, agency to so them. So basically it's magical realism. It's just it's, a, a, it's just a, re, magical realism. a repurposing of magical realism for rhetorical theory. Uh, right, to, right. To supplant and, actual materialism. Uh, right, exactly. And so of course, knowing me, um, there's no surprise that I, I make an argument that we need to go back to Marx and historical materialism um, and talking about the importance of rhetorical work with human agency. Um, and so I advance a theory called border materialism, um, which enables me um, to provide a framework of how these object-oriented things and matter intersect with bodies, um, and in particular women's bodies that are rooted in neoliberal economic structures. Um, and that then opened up everything I needed to then just springboard off of that um, to talk about border materialism as a way that can talk about neoliberalism because there's no coincidence that the feminist CDOs started in and around 1994, which was of course, we know the passage of NAFTA. And the passage of NAFTA 
brought these free trade zones on the border. Um, there are about 400 maquiladoras that employ about 300,000 um, Warenses in, in the factories. And we can talk about, you know, all of the harms. Um, there's one chapter that I'm really proud of called, um, uh, if I can turn here, um, after the, let me pull it up just so I can get on the right page. Feminicidio and the enchanted assemblages of things. And I really critique this notion of enchantment because the new materialism is very much um, this, I, I think a very privileged position, one that disavows context, histories, economies, and politics. And so in here, I talk about um, how, if we take objects as a starting point, but put them within a framework of, of historical materialism, it allows us to then look at the things and that intersect with bodies that lead to femicide. And so in this chapter, I look at the maquiladoras and all of the inherent risks and dangers um, that women are exposed to when they're working on the assembly lines. And this is important too, because NAFTA, um, you know, essentially decimated the campesinos in, in Southern Mexico. They were forced to migrate to Northern Mexico. And when arriving in Northern Mexico, the only jobs that were available were those in the maquiladoras or in the factories. And this really upset the balance of gendered um, norms within the family because the maquilas will only hire women. And they know this because women are, are easier to control, right? Um, and so the chapter looks at how NAFTA in conjunction with the feminicidios um, plays into this neoliberal ass assemblage of things. Things have a history. Um, and so I play on that with this notion of things on the assembly line um, and the production of those things and the, the dangers of women working within these places and spaces. So for example, um, the maquilas, you know, they have grass, they have lights, um, they have uh, safety mechanisms, they have alarms. In fact, there's a superhighway. They decimated a colony called Anapra to build this safe superhighway for the executives. Um, and I juxtapose that with the conditions where people are living in houses, oftentimes built by what the things that have been discarded from the maquilas themselves. Um, and also the fact that there is there are no safety mechanisms, there are no paved roads, there are no lights. And so thinking about it from a neoliberal perspective um, really afforded me the opportunity um, to get at um, things like the dangerous working conditions, the things like women are forced into uh, forced pregnancy tests, um, things of that nature. And then it also afforded me an opportunity to look at strategies of resistance. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, taking a new materialist term as this object, um, it doesn't give us any explanation. It doesn't give us any background. It doesn't give us any context. Um, and so, so that chapter is, is one um, mechanism to, to really critique and then talk about why border materialism is necessary. Uh, and what, what would you say um, are, if you had to kind of encapsulate border materialism, um, it, it reminds me of also some of the work that's been done in uh, critical immigration uh, legal studies, 
uh, about centering the migrant um, as sort of the, the as kind of a central subject um, of political analysis instead of seeing the migrant as something exceptional. Um, and I'm wondering if there's some of that too uh, in terms of what you're you're trying to do with border materialism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, border materialism. You know, I mean, I, I should say just as a reminder, we know that feminicidio, femicide, is a global issue. Um, but and one of the things that you know, if people ask me to talk about femicide, um, I think it's really important to ask. Well, you know what femicides are we talking about? Because if we look at the femicides in Argentina, the conditions are gonna be very different there and the things that give rise to femicide versus what's happening in Juarez. So- um, Or missing native women uh, up exactly. here in, uh, the, in a sort of Northwest part of the United States is also uh, unique, but nevertheless interconnected. Absolutely, absolutely. And so what are the conditions? What are the nuances? Um, I would never, for example, as you point out with your example of missing indigenous um, First Nation women, I would never attempt to speak on that subject, right? Because that's not a subject I have researched. Um, but nonetheless, we know that they're interconnected globally, right? Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much um, for, you know, kind of describing the this the the importance of the theoretical approach here. It seems like when you, uh, you know, take these approaches that that create this kind of metaphys these kind of metaphysical uh, relationships or attribute the you know identity uh, to things uh, to, that divert our 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 view of institutions and of material power. Uh, it seems like that is a, a real. Uh, it does a real disservice um, to mm -hmm. the material to an analysis of of the material antecedents and the uh, and the the corrupt power structures uh, and all of the things that you're talking about, you know, which had real concrete complacency and 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 causation to these problems. Yeah, and we need to talk about the fact that you know uh, I in the book I document how the rhetoric of the government is very much about, you know, I mentioned this dark legend. Um, and, and the reason for that is simple, it's capital, right? They want to restore Juarez to be kind of like Tijuana, this border town. Um, I think about it like in the eighties, right? Where everyone was partying in, in Tijuana. Mm -hmm. Well, you have mm -hmm. the same thing in, this, in the main drag of, of Juarez with the people from UTEP, you know, coming over and partying. And there was a huge amounts of, of income that the, the, the state and the corporations were making because of tourism. And so, you know, there, there is a, a piece where I document um, that there's, there's an inherent connection between the rhetoric of the dark legend and the need for the capital of the tourist industry. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, Juarez has done, um, you know, rather than um, actually putting aside resources on this issue, um, continually mask it, you know, so downtown in the, um, the main drag, um, they put in water fountains, um, they put in like a, a um, kind of a facelift, if you will, in that in that area. Um, and one of the things that the mothers and the activists did, which I think is absolutely brilliant, um, is I talk about how they are able to transform place and space. Um, and they do that through various rhetorical strategies, right? And so one of the things that um, 
is really powerful is if you imagine a shopping mall, um, when you go into a shopping mall and you haven't been there before, you'll, you'll look for a directory um, of, you know, where different um, stores are or different things that you're wanting to purchase. So one of the, the things to fight back against this logic of tourist-driven capital is that um, the mothers actually turn these shopping directories um, into missing persons. So instead of... Wow. Yeah. Um, and there's some images in the book as well. Um, so instead of looking for where shoes are, next thing you know, um, you're looking at this image of one of the disappeared women with the information of who to contact and where she was seen and, you know, what she looks like um, and just completely radically change that logic of capital into um, the, this other narrative about the feminicidios. And that's just one example um, of again, taking objects, but with human agency. So that object has, you know, persuasive ability and also functions as, as demands. So that that's one example. This is so fascinating too, because of the, the way that, um, that these, you know, that these activists and so many activists in these very uh, precarious situations uh, are the ones who are doing the most edgy and creative uh, job at reinventing protest and, and reinventing uh, dissent. Um, how how impressed were you with uh, I I don't know kind of the the um, innovation and the sort of gutsiness uh, of these kinds of of approaches to confronting um, public authority? Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, but if you talk to like Jose Luis is one of the fathers, his daughter Esmeralda is on the cover of the book. Um, I've worked closely with him and, you know, his, his rhetoric is always, you know, there, there is no choice. There is no choice. You know, they're not looking, I have to look. Um, and so constantly thinking about strategies of deployment, um, it's, it's very, very strategic. It's very calculated um, and it is very, very risky. I mean, he's been thrown in jail numerous times as, as you could imagine, um, especially with, the, with the, the public searches because what intrigued me most about this, this new materialism um, was, was the link between an inherent objects, properties as being vibrant. So I have a chapter called lifeless or vibrant matter. Um, and I think it gets at your question because um, they're going out in searches and, you know, so the whole time we're searching, they just had these machine guns pointed at our heads and just following us around when instead they could have been searching, right? Um, you know, so uh, there's that, but also um, that even if there is inherent vibrancy within the DNA. Um, I argue that it in and of itself, it's meaningless. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, there's often falsification of evidence. Um, or they just, you know, end up in the back of a room and nobody investigates or does anything with those bones. Um, and so even if you have something inherent like DNA, it still takes agency and it still takes protest. Um, to, to get that DNA analyzed. Um, and in fact, the, the family members have brought in um, external 
uh, folks to analyze some of the DNA because the government cannot be trusted. So they brought in, it was actually the same forensics team that identified bodies at 9-11, the forensics team from Argentina. It's a forensics team from Argentina. Um, And you mentioned kind of this, you know, um, what I observed in the face of these suppression strategies and tactics. searches is one thing, but then they realized also that none of the DNA was being examined. So currently what many of the the activists are doing is they're actually getting trained in forensic science and they have started themselves cataloging the bones and cataloging clothing or whatever item it is that they have found. And they have essentially started their own forensic science lab, if you can think about it in in that way. and, and so the ingenuity, the persistent nature, the persistent nature of this um, is just, it's, it's constantly um, mind blowing to me about the work that's being done. What an amazing testament to uh, kind of the, 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 the way in which um, people can um, become uh, specialists uh, in the process of dismantling or confronting oppression, and it's almost a—I—I I almost think of 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 the Paris Commune, uh, and I think of how people, you know, said, "Well, we can run these things. We can run all of these uh, these. Uh, we can become the experts." Uh, and the, you know, this this sort of demarcation of expertise itself um, collapses when society when when the legitimacy. Uh, of these power structures also collapses and people sort of take over the process themselves. I, I, I mean, I, that sounds very theoretical, but it's, it's an, 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 a very practical kind of, of seizure of the, of the means of power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in chapter five of the book, I talked about, I talk about precisely that. I make the argument that they are literally enacting the role of the state. Yeah. Right. Right. They're, they are, uh, and in doing so, you know, sending this very important message about, uh, you know, the, the, what, you know, this, uh, this answer to this kind of retort of, well, what, you know, what would you do without us? You know, what would you do without our authority or without our expertise? And, mm-hmm. you know, now you have the state is, the state's not protecting you. Uh, and you are doing a bunch of the things that they are supposed to be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's definitely taking on the role of the state, but then there's also eschewing the role of the state. And I talk about um, uh, in the Makila Dora sector, um, I have a mini case study of a group. It's really fascinating. Um, there were a group of um, nuns called the Sisters of Tonatzin um, that came through Anapra um, which is very close to the Maquiladora sector where many of the laborers work. And um, they taught them how to build ecological toilets because it was a desert, you know, it's, it is a, a desert. Um, and, and so they, uh, many of the, the women quit their jobs at the Maquilas and started working full time on these ecological toilets, um, which they can sell, but also then turn their community into a place where they can farm, where they can grow, um, because they had no sanitation there, because the government didn't provide it. Um, and so I'm also really interesting in looking at these alternative economies or different strategies of resistance that 
in addition to one strategy of taking on the role of the state, another strategy is rejecting the paradigms that are in place and, and creating alternatives. Uh, shifting gears just a bit, um, or, or, and, but I think springboarded by what you were just talking about, um, do you uh, talk a little bit about the, the role of, of religion and spirituality um, in all of this, both as um, a, an oppressive force and also as sort of the, uh, maybe the, the seizure of, of spirituality as potentially a, a catalyst to liberation as well? Well, that's a really an interesting question because um, the you know many of the family members have have strong faith, um, strong Catholic faith, um, and they've actually used that strategically. So thank you for the question. Um, one of the things that they've done um, is, as I mentioned, the government will um, oftentimes articulate. Um, the women who have disappeared, the girls who have disappeared as prostitutes. So one of the things that they've done is utilize their religion to put out images. Um, and, and this, this is, is very common. Um, if, a, if a woman or girl has disappeared, um, they have her photo up of her first communion. Um, therefore, invoking this notion of being pure or innocent. Um, and now, of course, there's problems with that, right? With the whole virgin whore dichotomy and perpetuating sure, sure, that. Yeah. So we, I mean, we know that that's there as well. And um, and so we have, it, it is a, a fine line as a strategy. Um, but, but, and also using photos of things that are very familial, religious, like the first communion, but also their first, not first, but their quinceanera photos is often something that we see. When the women marched, um, and the activists um, one year from the state of Chihuahua to Juarez proper. Um, and just to give you a sense, um, I, I don't know the exact mileage, but it's a six hour drive from Juarez to Chihuahua. And they walked that entire distance, um, raising awareness, forming protests along the way. It's gotta be like 400 miles, something I, I like mean, that. just, a, yeah. Um, and, uh, I actually have a VHS tape with with it documented wow. um, as, when they were selling the tapes to raise money for the movement back then. Um, but when they took when they there is a, a monument at the border that currently stands, um, which I think is is actually really powerful because I talk about how when you I talked about the pink crosses, how when you cross in a particular space, it's a line of demarcation that this is a place in space where femicide is occurring. Um, and so they took this um, these railroad ties from Chihuahua to erect this huge monument that still stands on the border of El Paso and, and Juarez. And the government kept taking it down. They kept um, demolishing it and then the family members would put up another one and then the government would take it down and the family members would put up another one. Um, and then the family members came up with an idea um, that if they took their priest to the actual monument, to the, um, to the uh, uh, monument that stands at the border um, and have the priest bless it with holy water, then no one would touch it. And in fact, they were correct. And so since that priest blessed it with holy water, the state will not touch that monument and today it stands. The dynamics uh, that are at work with all this are just so fascinating. Um, did you 
find parallels or did you think about parallels um, between the the other kinds of disappearances that have occurred um, you know throughout uh, uh, Latin America um, uh, in terms of, of people who were disappeared by the government um, a different maybe different types of, of focal points of violence um, but the resistance to that through the mothers of the disappeared for example uh, I, I keep thinking about parallels in my mind between those two phenomena yeah, absolutely. Um, the Plaza de Mayo and, and thinking about that, right, absolutely. There's so much there. And if you talk to the the mothers, they're very aware of these histories. They're very aware of, of um, and, and tapping into those in the public consciousness and thinking about their current strategies. Absolutely. Um, and you know, the, even with current movements going on right now, um, you know, we had the Me Too movement um, here in the United States that became also um, in Latin America, um, a hashtag for, um, it used to be not one more, um, which is, you know, the title of the book. Um, and then that shifted in, th in um, because other Latin American countries were using the hashtag ni una menos, not one less. It doesn't translate that that well in English, but essentially meaning like one is too many. Um, and so these the movement in Juarez has joined with other Latin American movements around the ni una menos. Um, and in fact, um, this was after the book was published. Um, I believe it was last year. I can't remember the month, but there was a strike um, about the femicides in Latin America. And it was a labor strike um, where everyone on one, it was similar to um, perhaps our day without an immigrant um, mm -hmm. here in the United States. Um, and so it was a day without women um, in all forms of labor. And, and, and that was the first time there had ever been a national strike around femicide. Um, within these other Latin American countries. So we see, we're seeing more and more of um, these connections between movements across borders and across countries. I know we have a lot of, we've got a lot of communication folks, students and scholars watching this and listening to this. Uh, we also have a lot of activists uh, from all kinds of places and organizations um, who are watching. Um, what are some of the, from, a, from the standpoint of, of, your, of your academic discipline, um, what, what are some of, can, can you talk a little bit about some of the new voices and directions um, that are coming out um, and maybe, you know, maybe as a result also of the, the intensity of the last four years um, in terms of uh, uh, particularly of immigration politics, um, how are some of those things uh, shaping your discipline and maybe producing some new voices? That's a great question. And it's an exciting time and also a frustrating time. Um, so a couple of years ago, there was a movement within the communication studies discipline called Communication So White. Um, and it really shook up the discipline, um, critiquing, you know, the, what types of things are getting published, um, who's getting cited. I mean, we know that citational, um, the, the, the act of citing is political. Um, and so Communication So White really forced journal editors to look at who is on their editorial boards, what types of articles are being accepted. Um, there was a big shake, shake up um, 
for our Distinguished Scholar Award and how the litany have just been these white men, right, for, for so long. And where are the people of color? Where are the people of color on these boards? Where are the people of color in these awards that are constantly um, you know, producing stellar work but, are, but continually being overlooked? Um, and so there, there is a page, I think I sent that to you, um, Communication Scholars for Transformation, which I look at as, as kind of the subaltern public, you know, thinking about Nancy Fraser's work as a place for testing ideas and arguments and then taking them out to wider publics. Um, and that Facebook page has been, I think, really radicalized the field. Um, and so I think that, 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 to me, this is a really exciting time um, to continually fight for representation um, and, you know, that, that's just a few examples of the shakeup that's happening in our field right now and, and really forcing accountability. Uh, any, uh, new exciting voices that you would like to, uh, uh maybe signal boost? <laughs> oh, wow. You're putting me on the spot. Uh, sorry if, sorry about that. I just <laughs> wondered if you had um, it in mind. Gosh, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Come back to me, and I'll give you I'll give you a few that I'm, are really exciting voices. Certainly, certainly. Um, well, it is really exciting to see, uh, and and I think that people, if you're if you're not really familiar with uh, the communication discipline and uh, not just rhetoric, but I think communication studies as a whole, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon because it's so ubiquitous in universities. It's often one of the largest majors. It's mm -hmm. often a uh, site where in terms of general ed, you know, tons of people go through uh, various programs. And so it, it matters in a way that if you're not really familiar with all of those logistics, you might not really understand why talking about the transformation of the communication discipline is really uh, talking about the transformation of academia in general and a discipline that people are going to be exposed to as undergraduates, whether they ultimately are communication majors or not. Um, and I know that, you know, my own experience in the discipline was one where there was so much tension um, between folks who kind of wanted to use the discipline as a way to make better workers and to make mm -hmm. corporations communicate better uh, and to, you know, to, to um, do PR, you know, basically um, for big capital, you know, and on the other hand, you know, scholars who, uh, you know, um, comfortably referred to uh, the, you know, establishment rhetoric as the dripping laughing death face. Uh, and, and so I feel like that tension was really defined in so many ways, my, my memories of, of the discipline. And so to know that it's changing and interrogating some of those, uh, you know, white, patriarchal capitalist foundations uh, is really, to me, an exciting piece of news. Yeah, I would say, and also the exciting piece of news um, with activism in the field that, you know, departments are demanding that these types of um, actions, you know, beyond serving on a committee, for example, that activism should count towards tenure and promotion um, and writing those into tenure and promotion documents, um, you know, um, is something that folks are pushing for. Think um, a lot of folks have already done it. 
Um, and there's also, a, you know, a real um, excitement around engaged learning in the field, um, which when I, when, you know, when you and I were together, that wasn't a thing, um, you know, and so for me, taking the fact that, that activism um, is trying to be counted um, is really important um, and uh, opens up, I think, our view of what it means to be a scholar. So like I said earlier, I constantly say I'm an activist scholar, I'm a scholar activist, you know, just trying to get that in there um, to really uh, mark what should count if we are talking and theorizing about inequality um, we should be counting the projects because so many of us in the field are doing projects in communities. Um, and so, you know, when, uh, when Black Lives Matter started taking off, um, you know, it, it also brought to bear things like decolonizing the syllabus. Um, and so, you know, universities now, um, even if you look at the discussions in higher ed, um, has really permeated that as well. And uh, how have how has this research um, and this writing um, also informed uh, your political uh, activity and kind of the energy that you bring to politics outside of uh, some of this these academic circles? Have you been able to um, engage in direct um, political action, uh, maybe somewhat informed by these uh, by this scholarship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're in Los Angeles, um, where, you know, there are, if there's a protest going on, it's probably going to be happening in LA too, you know, so, um, you know, immigration, Black Lives Matter, labor, you know, these are all things that are really important to me. Um, and so, you know, the, the feminist EDO stuff has been hard um, because, you know, my work is, is in Mexico. Um, and so because of the narco um, violence, um, it, it was really hard to even get approval from the university to do that work over there because of risk management. Right, um, right. But I would say now because of COVID, um, it, it, it's even more crippling. Um, and so it's just, you know, it's a, it's a somewhat of a frustrating time right now. We've been talking to Nina Marie Lozano, uh, about her book, Not One More, Feminicidio on the Border. Uh, it's a book about the murder of women in Juarez uh, and the, the politics and rhetoric of the border, uh, the failure of institutions, the failure of authority, the history of neoliberalism, um, all of these things. Uh, uh, I would love uh, for you to, to take a little time as we wrap up here uh, and talk about what uh, work you're going to be, uh, what work you have ahead of you and some things that you might be excited about uh, that are coming up. Oh, thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, actually, um, I'm working on a book proposal right now. Um, it looks like I'm going to be working with the same editor um, at the Ohio State University Press, which is really exciting. Um, and I'm taking my work to the next step. Um, well, two things. One is I'm working on with a professor um, in Juarez of getting my book published in Spanish. That's really, really important to me. Um, to get that done. Um, so there's that. But um, I'm also look, turning my work to extend this project to look at Feminicidio and Asylum. Um, and so that's the, the next book project that I'm working on. 
Uh, that's great uh, and 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 wonderful because I have so many uh, friends and and, and valued uh, partners around the country involved in asylum work um, as well, and so they will be really excited um, to hear uh, about this. Uh, that's wonderful. You must be uh, 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 really heuristically excited to be able to synthesize those ideas. Yeah, and it's a new research trajectory, a new line of inquiry for me. Um, but there are many um, cases. There's one woman, um, uh, and I, I won't say her name, but she's here in in Long Beach that has been stuck in the system. Um, there really isn't a legal path forward for femicide and asylum. Um, and no, because so it doesn't fit into the very, very tight uh, and kind of archaic categories of asylum law. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and so thinking about it on both sides um, of the border, I'll be um, conducting interviews um, and looking at the testimonies um, from the women, but also looking at the legal categories and the movements around gendered asylum. So um, I'm just just getting started. Well, I'm excited for you. I'm excited for uh, the uh, trajectory of politics that are centered around uh, these questions uh, of border politics and and migrants uh, and uh, um, obviously deeply disturbed um, by the, the continuing cover-ups and the continuing uh, ways in which institutions evade accountability and responsibility um, and also you know continuously frustrated by people's uh, by the, the refusal of powerful groups and powerful institutions um, to to kind of put the pictures together and understand that there is a material relationship um, between, you know, that these are not aberrations that they, you know, and they're not the result of some kind of metaphysical uh, disorder or something like that, that these are real consequences to real systems. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, when you do the work that you do, uh, I think it gives a lot of people hope um, that there are, you know, still spaces of, of, of very important critical discourse in academia, um, and that ultimately those spaces, you know, have to be filled by some kind of materialism, some kind of accounting for the relationship between these big economic systems and these local uh, localized instances of injustice uh, and oppression. Um, and so you're building that bridge. Uh, that's what you're doing. And it, it's so, it just feels so important to me. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity um, to talk about the feminist idios. And um, I don't know if there were any questions. I can't see who's in the chat, um, but it's, it's just been a pleasure. I didn't see any questions the last time I looked, but I did see a bunch of thumbs up and a bunch of hearts and a bunch of thank yous uh, and awesome. good works and things like that. Um, what, uh, do you have uh, maybe a website or, or some other thing that you would direct people to if they wanted to, to learn more about your work? Oh, thank you. Um, well, the title of the book, again, is called Not One More. Feminicidio on the border. It's probably backwards, <laughs> um, and uh, you can you can Google that. I would also point you um, to 
um, a documentary that I collaborated with, with BuzzFeed, um, which has been really exciting because it's gotten over half a million views, you know, so things like that. I really believe in critical documentaries. And so if you Google um, what is happening to the women of Juarez BuzzFeed, um, it's a short documentary, but that also um, will give folks some more information. Fantastic. And we will post that um, on our Facebook page as well um, as our Twitter page. Uh, and uh, once again, I want to thank uh, Nina Lozano uh, for coming on. Uh, it's been way fucking too long uh, since, know, we have, uh, since we uh, have um, collaborated either uh, for uh you know, for good, for good purposes, or for more nefarious uh, purposes, and uh, <laughs> and I, I miss uh, I miss those days uh, very much. Go beach, um, Go beach. and uh, <laughs> and thank you again. Uh, uh, give my love to Dana, uh, and again, thank you so much for for sharing so much of yourself and and your work. Uh, it's so easy, I think, to take. Uh, routes that, you know, that are not personally taxing, that are not, um, you know, that don't weigh in so much on our consciousness and our conscience and history and all of those things. Uh, and in the me and instead, you know, what you're doing is, you know, just putting so much of yourself out there. And I just, uh, I just know that a lot of people really appreciate that work. Thank you, Matt. All right. I love you so much. I love you too, Nina. I can't wait to, to see you when uh, when things cool down a bit, uh, metaphorically yes. speaking, um, then I'm totally out there and uh, and would love to, to catch up with you all. It's uh, happening. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been the Solidarity House Morning Show. You can support our work at patreon.com slash Solidarity House. We've got a bunch of stuff coming out on our podcasts. Uh, our latest podcast, of course, is uh, Kelly Potter uh, on uh, the relationship between Marxism and transgender liberation. Uh, this episode uh, with Nina will be out on a podcast soon. You might be listening to it that way right now. Um, and uh, so uh, check out our work, Solidarity House Cooperative. Uh, thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. Thanks again, Nina. Thank you.